Let's go on with the main business today. <coughs> and that is that um, our very own, I say very own, uh, Tom Simpson, because actually really he's from the other place, uh, but he's changed the spots and gone dark blue as opposed to night blue. Um, he is uh, Associate Professor of Philosophy and Public Policy at the Blavatnik School of Government. Um, he was uh, fully educated at Cambridge in both um, his undergraduate degree, master's uh, and doctorate. Um, he then took um, a rather unusual step of joining the Royal Marine Commandos uh, for a period of five years, where um, amongst various involvements in Northern Ireland uh, and uh, ended up in Afghanistan, um, he was also uh, aide-de-camp to General uh, Sir Rob Fry. Um, so some people here who know him, so uh, that would be very useful. He also was in, in Iraq. Um, and uh, not surprisingly, also was in Helmand in Afghanistan, where he was an ops officer and stuff. Uh, but he's now returned um, to his academic life and is a senior research fellow at Wadham, uh, and I say largely now involved in delivering programmes, uh, including a doctoral programme, uh, at the Blavatnik School of Government. And your subject is the morality of unconventional force. Tom, over to you. Great. Well, uh, thank you very much, Rob, for that very generous introduction. And I'll, I'll assume uh, that the centre of gravity for the audience here uh, is non-philosophical. <laughs> so I'm a philosopher by training, uh, but I'm assuming that the majority of people here are from a diversity of disciplines, history, um, international relations, strategic studies, and so forth. So uh, in order to help that, what I've got is a handout, which hopefully everyone's got, um, and all the key points that I'll make will be on there. And uh, I'll talk if I may, for about 30 minutes, and that should be about 20 minutes for uh, questions and discussion afterwards. Okay, so let's, uh, let's just dive into the topic. Um, so my interest is in unconventional force, or what, you know, one of my interests, but the interest for today. Uh, and <coughs> what I mean by this is the use of force outside of either wartime or by police for internal security. So we've got very established bodies of theory for thinking about the ethical questions that the use of force throws up in these two contexts. So the first one, we've got this big body of work known in general terms as just war theory, and there's debates and discussions about what the requirements of just war theory are. But that's been a question that's of very, very long standing. I mean, two millennia at least. It goes back to Augustine and, 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 and earlier. We don't, there's not so much work on police ethics, although you can find it, but what there is is a huge amount of discussion about the foundational questions of political authority. And right at the heart of political authority is that monopoly on the use of violence that the state uh, is supposed to legitimately enjoy. What we don't have is any really serious theory, moral theory, about what the conditions are uh, on which force may be permissibly used outside of these two contexts. Right, but it's quite important that we get this body of theory because you only need to be moderately attentive to the world over the last 10, 15, 20 years or so to see that there's an increasing amount of force being used by governments of every stripe that are not in declared wars. I mean, actually, declared wars are the exception rather than the rule. Am I correct in saying that those who are better on their empirical stuff? I don't think war was even declared in March in 2003 against Iraq. I think, I think it was uh, straight out. So my question today is, what are the moral limits on the use of unconventional force? 
and uh, this is not a detective story, uh, so I'm going to tell you the answer now. Uh, <laughs> and uh, the answer that I'm going to defend, this is roughly in, in a slogan form, is that spies and special forces play by big boys' rules. Okay, so that's a, a kind of English euphemism uh, uh, for those of you whom English is a second language. The, the kind of sense is, okay, so another euphemism, when you're playing ice hockey and there's a fight, you know it's getting serious when the gloves are off. There's a kind of sense, right, okay, both sides have adopted different rules that they're going to work by. And that's the basic thought that I'm wanting to defend today. Okay, so let me pass quite quickly over the nature of unconventional force. So there are two purposes, uh, uh, so rather the structure, I'm going to talk about the nature, and then I'm going to talk about a, a natural way of thinking that you might be drawn to to think about this. And I'm going to say why well, I think that's false, and then I'm going to propose an alternative in its place. Okay. So what's the nature of unconventional force? There are two purposes. Firstly, uh, to gain intelligence in the pursuit of national security. And this may take a variety of forms, so there's all the ints, sigint, imint, osint, etc., etc., which uh, we're used to. Uh, and it may include the, the non-consensual access to property, uh, so physical and cyber. So if you stick a, a memory stick in someone's computer and they haven't given you permission to do so, you are non-consensually accessing their property. Equally, if you pick someone's lock, you're doing the same. Uh, you may also, states also, gain access to this information through uh, interrogation and at the extreme through torture. Uh, and I'm making no value judgments here, I'm just reporting uh, what goes on. So another purpose that unconventional force is used for, uh, which I think has been growing in prominence, is the interdiction and disruption of enemies. And this could take a variety of forms. So at the soft end, sowing false information, blackmail or bribery, uh, moving up the line, sabotage or destruction of property. Uh, and then at the kind of the, the sharpest end, assassinations, uh, targeted killings, rendition, and detention. And just to kind of hone in, there are two foci of appraisal, there are two points at which these kinds of activities could be appraised. So one is the kind of force that's employed, and the second is the target against whom the force is employed. So that's just to structure it. Okay, so that's, this is all just by way of setup. I'm now going to turn to uh, a natural way of thinking. So you might think, how, how do we answer the question, what are the moral limits on the use of unconventional force? And you might say, well, look, what we should do is we should look at just war theory, which is very developed, and we should take the principles from just war theory, and we should see how they apply by analogy in the context of unconventional force. So just war theory has two central planks. There's what's called jus ad bellum, the justice of going to war, and then jus in bello, so the justice of what you can do when you're fighting. And very roughly, the thought is politicians are responsible for jus ad bellum, because you know, whether or not Britain was right to go to war in 2003 was something that Tony Blair has to answer for. That's the predominant thought. And then soldiers are responsible for jus in bello. They shouldn't target hospitals and so forth. And there's a variety of principles that are proposed under these two heads. And uh, principles like proportionality, principles like necessity, principles like last resort, like lawful authority and public declaration of war. These would be standard principles in the just war tradition. Now, there is uh, 
we're fortunate that a lot of the people who work in the agencies which conduct unconventional force are quite reflective individuals and are sometimes troubled, at least wanting to question what the moral basis of their work is about. And so there's a growing body of discussion of literature by these reflective practitioners. And this tends to be the approach that most of these people take. And as a case study of this, uh, David Omand, who's former head of GCHQ, is that correct? Uh, he's got a book that came out recently uh, in which he takes exactly this approach, an analogical approach to just war theory. And I cite some other examples uh, there. Okay, now, there's something that's wrong about this and there's something that's right about this. So what's wrong about it is that analogical arguments are just about the worst form of philosophical argument that you can get. So whenever anyone proposes an analogy, we all kind of sit there scratching our heads and thinking, well, okay, I can see that in that respect there's an analogy, but in that respect there isn't an analogy, and it's, it's just like chasing a bar of soap around the bath. It just kind of slips out your hand. And you can never actually pin down what the point of disagreement is. So as a method, it's a stunningly bad way of going about it. There is something that's right about it, however, and this is that this approach, the analogical approach, sort of almost unwittingly, I mean, I don't mean this pejoratively, but unwittingly stumbles upon a way of thinking about the ethics of force that has very considerable currency in contemporary philosophical discussion. And this is what's called reductivism. So it's a particular position uh, uh, about the ethics of force. And reductivism under 4A says the following. Ethical permissions and prohibitions on the use of force derive solely from what individuals are permitted and prohibited to do to each other. Okay? So here's the implication. We want to think about the rights and wrongs of the use of force in war. What we need to do is imagine a case, you know, Rob and I have come across each other in the street, and you can construct the cases according to different facts of the matter about who's done what. And then we think about what we're individually entitled to do to each other. And once you've got that, you then simply have to extrapolate from a dyadic person-on-person interaction to a group versus group interaction. You've got to work up on the basis of the rights that individuals hold to the rights that groups might hold by transfer, but not by analogy. And the implication that comes from this is that the morality of force is insensitive to social context. So it doesn't matter whether a war is declared or not, because that's irrelevant to the rights and wrongs that have been conducted between us, for instance. All that matters is who's done what and what the rights and wrongs are that arise from it. And um, as a result, there's no such thing as the ethics of war or the ethics of the police. There's just the ethics of force, and there are just these different contexts in which force is used. And uh, I give a quote there under 4C. So Jeff McMahon has just moved to Oxford. It's a very good thing for Oxford. Uh, he's, a, he's now a professor of, of um, uh, moral philosophy here, and he's probably the most prominent reductivist uh, that's writing today. And he says this, 
The conditions of war change nothing at all. They merely make it more difficult to ascertain certain facts. Okay, so do you get that? The conditions of war change nothing at all. They merely make it more difficult to ascertain certain facts. So whether or not we're right to use force, totally irrelevant whether it's special forces, green troops, people in police uniform, etc., etc. The, the rules that govern the use of force are identical in every single context. <coughs> now I disagree with this, <laughs> and I'm going to try and explain why. What I can't do in this relatively short discussion is give you the full and conclusive argument, in part because it's just a very big and very live debate, and in part because I'm still working that out myself. It's a, it's a kind of longer-term project. But what I want to do is I want to put two a discussion, put two sides of a discussion and then indicate why I endorse the contrary. Okay. So I think so I endorse what, what I this is my term, uh, what I call exceptionalism about the use of force. And this claims that the ethics of force can be and indeed is sensitive to the social context in which it occurs. And therefore, the principles of just war theory have a different structure of justification to that which derive from interactions between individuals, qua individuals, as insofar as we're an individual autonomous agent acting. The social context uh, within which that individual's action becomes significant. I'm going to try and explain why that's the case. So, firstly, McMahon. So, this is the disagreement that I'm now going to explore. So, McMahon distinguishes what he calls the deep morality of war from the laws of war. So the Geneva Conventions are laws of war, uh, the UN Charter uh, instructions about the conditions under which war is justifiable would be laws of war. And McMahon contrasts that with the morality of war. So he thinks that there's moral facts which determine the rights and wrongs of war before you get to law. Now what's the point of the divergence? So the latter the laws of war have to be formulated, he says, to take account of the likely effects of its promulgation, of its institutionalisation, and its enforcement. So an example might be um, uh, something like... Uh, so I think, I think the example, if I remember rightly, that he gives is one of rape. So you might think that uh, perpetrators of rape deserve death. You know, if you think the capital punishment is permissible, that's plausibly one of the crimes for which that punishment is, uh, is permissibly enacted. But you might think that having that punishment on the statute books would deter certain kinds of reporting. And you may value the reporting of rapes over and above the immediate justice that perpetrators of rape deserve. And therefore you might have a law which specifies a different punishment to that which morality requires. That might be an example. You could think of other kinds of examples, where the incentive structure effect of having a law on the books may be such that it, cha it changes behaviour and we want to take that into account in the laws that we enact. Okay. Now McMahon's view is that where you've got the morality of law and the laws of war, where these come apart, basically you should follow the more restrictive. So sometimes morality may say that you're allowed to do something, but the law says you're not, and then you should follow the law. So McMahon, for instance, has the view uh, that if you're a significant causal contributor 
to the cause of the war, you uh, are a legitimate target for those prosecuting that war. So in particular terms, if you're a politician who authorises the war, such as Tony Blair, he thinks that you are a legitimate, morally speaking, you're a legitimate target for attack. As it happens, we have a convention, a very, a very robust convention, which says people in uniform are allowed to be attacked, people who are not in uniform are not allowed to be attacked. Ergo, you shouldn't shoot politicians, they're not legitimate targets. So in that case, that would be an instance where morality permits something, but law forbids it, and on his view, you should do what law requires. And that's a short. Equally, you could have the converse. You could have something where the law permits something, but morality forbids it, and you should follow the prohibition that morality gives. And in the tiebreaker case where the law says uh, you should do something and morality says you shouldn't do something, then you should follow morality in that situation. Okay, so that's McMahon's view. Now, okay, what, what's going on here with this view? I, I think, this is my suggestion, I think it's, you can understand his inquiry as one into the morality of force in the state of nature. So I'm sure you'll be familiar with the state of nature is this concept. You know, imagine a world in which the state didn't exist. It's just people running around the earth getting on with their activities. What would be the ethics of force in that situation? And because he's got a very rich notion of the rights that people hold in that situation, uh, it's the state of nature uh, that John Locke espouses rather than the one that Thomas Hobbes uh, espouses. Okay, but this is really puzzling, right? Because we don't live in the state of nature. I mean, we, ex we explicitly live under the state, I and mean, certainly in domestic categories. That's very definitely the case. And there are very good reasons why we don't live in the state of nature, because on any plausible construal, you know, governments have got to be really, really bad in order for life to be worse under the government than it would be in the state of nature. I mean, we institute governments. That's the sort of basic insight behind the contractarian tradition. We institute governments because life goes better. And it's not just that life goes better in some kind of, oh, it's nice for us, but the effects of life going better are so much more serious that there's, if there's going to be any kind of moral obligation at all, there's going to be moral obligation for each of us. There's a natural duty of justice for each of us to play our part in ensuring that we bring about a condition where we live under the state rather than living uh, roughly a benign state, rather than living in the state of nature. And so Henry Shu, so this is a very, uh, um, uh, incestuous is too strong, it's a very localised <laughs> set of contributors. Henry Shu, also a professor emeritus here in Oxford, uh, disagree. At the time of writing, they were different parts of the world, uh, but, uh, but they're not now. Uh, so Henry Shu replies to McMahon on this, and he says, quote on the handout, we do not have to choose between the what the morally best laws permit and require and what morality permits and requires, because morality requires that where we need laws, we formulate the best laws and then follow them where they apply. We can take the morally best action by obeying the morally best law where we ought to follow a law. We may, of course, have to choose between the actual laws and what morality requires the law to be, but that is because and when the actual laws are not the best laws. So do you see the basic claim that shoes making there in contrast to McMahon, which is that mor morality enjoins us and indeed requires us to obey the law. <coughs> so there's going to be a caveat bracket, you know, under certain conditions the law is going to be so corrupt and so unjust, Nazi Germany, etc., that morality requires you to defy the law. But that's a kind of, that's a particular question about the scope of political authority. Absent that, dealing with legitimate laws, morality requires us to obey the law. 
and uh, this this just seems to me obviously the right way to go on uh, uh, in terms of this particular debate. Um, and one and a sort of a supporting consideration, one way of seeing why this is the case, uh, would be to imagine what denying it would require. So, if there's no moral requirement to obey the law, then law has purely pragmatic. You know, it ought to have only a pragmatic incentive-based effect on our conduct. But basically, no one thinks, apart from the absolutely criminally psychopathic, no one thinks that law is a purely pragmatic mechanism. Nearly everyone thinks that the law requires us to obey it. It makes a moral claim on our conduct. And Shu's position is, I mean, this is sort of philosophical. Uh, I'm dealing with philosophical interlocutors here. He's, he's not committed to very much substantial moral theory here. So he's, he's committed only to the claim that fundamental moral considerations include more than desert relations, relations of what one person deserves or another person deserves, which is the case on McLaren's view. The desert does not have trumping significance, so it doesn't always take primary importance, and that law derives part of its moral force from such other considerations. That just seems, those, those just seem to me to be truisms and worthy of um, endorsement. Okay, so I've got two final planks in the argument, and then I'm going to apply this to conventional force. So I want to extend Shu's position here. Law doesn't have its force because of some kind of ex nihilo status that law has. Law has its moral force because of what it makes available, namely coordination of people's actions. It's not only law that provides this coordinating function. In particular, conventions provide the same coordinating function. So a really nice easy example of convention is, uh, is whether we drive on the right or the left on the roads. So it doesn't matter whether we drive on the right or the left, but it does matter for all of us that we come up with a decision, a regularity of behaviour as to whether or not it's the left or the right that we drive in. And given that we drive on the right or the left, every single one of us has compelling interest in also following the regularity, in this case, in Britain, driving on the left. And coordinations, pure, co pure conventions in that sense, structure quite a few of our interactions. And it seems as well like you can have mixed conventions where there is, uh, there's both mutual benefits from having a regularity of behaviour which people follow, but the mixed nature derives from the fact that there is sometimes strategic advantage to be had from defecting from those conventions. Nonetheless, all of us would prefer to live in, a, this is the structure of the free rider problem, all of us would prefer to live in a world where the regularity of behaviour exists than one in which it's not followed. And conventions exist in war. So I want to move this slightly more specifically. So Thomas Schelling uh, uh, has this great observation, which is exactly at the heart of it. If war to the finish has become inevitable, there's nothing left but pure conflict. But if there's any possibility of avoiding a mutually damaging war or of conducting warfare in a way that minimises damage or of coercing an adversary by threatening war rather than waging it, the possibility of mutual accommodation is as important and dramatic as the element of conflict. Okay. Let me give a quite a dramatic example from war. So practices of surrender have been very, very variable through history. At the moment, the law that's on the books is that if a soldier puts their hands up, indicates his life surrender. A soldier is obliged to accept that at any point in time. 
not that long ago, about 400 years ago, the practice in European early modern warfare was very different, in particular for sieges. So the practice in sieges was that a surrender, uh, there was an obligation on the attacker, the besieger, to discuss terms with the defender of a city up until the point at which the walls were breached. Okay? At the point at which the walls were breached, there is no obligation. They can if they want to, but there's no obligation to accept someone's surrender. So the defender, in continuing to defend the city beyond the point at which the walls are breached, incurs the liability of no longer having the privilege of surrender. Okay, that's quite dramatic. So what it means is that uh, so siege warfare is a notoriously bloody business, and you get a lot of cities sacked. When you look at the sources, the people involved were very keen to defend this practice, not because they desired to kill people afterwards, but because they saw that the costs involved of sending the attackers up the ramparts were so high on, on likely casualties that there was, there was good reason to have an incentive for the defenders to surrender before their cost was involved. So the convention here is impartial between sides. Everyone can apply it. It's completely transparent. Everyone knows that that's the point at which surrender is ceases to become possible. And it's ex ante, before the interaction happens, it's in, everyone in everyone's interest that that happens. Because the point is more, if you know that if they, the attackers cross the walls, you're going to think jolly hard about whether or not you have to surrender in good time. And more surrenders overall occur as a result of that convention being in place. Now, so someone else has called this paper psychopathic, uh, one of my colleagues. And uh, you'll begin to see where that charge, I disagree with the charge, but you'll begin to see where the charge comes from. Genghis Khan's incentive structure had a similar one. So, uh, so he also imposed the same um, conditions on cities of surrender before hostilities had, uh, had taken place. And in fact, slightly more close to home, British paratroopers in the Falklands uh, imposed a very similar sort of practice. Point of no surrender was 100 yards out. So beyond that point, the exposure to attacking forces was so high that you became liable. Uh, you lost the privilege of surrender after that point. And you can see how different conflicts can have different points at which it becomes pertinent and there's reason to say surrender doesn't become achievable beyond this point. Now, my point is, where coordination is achieved by convention, the regularity of behaviour specifies the prohibitions and permissions that exist in that context. So where that regularity of behaviour exists, you could be prohibited or permitted from carrying out certain actions in accordance with that regulatory behaviour. The social context becomes deeply morally significant, is my argument. Okay, here's the, here's the second uh, plank, and it's, so it's a big caveat, uh, what I call categoricity. So it's not conventions all the way down. Uh, some actions, in my view, are categorically prohibited, so torture. Uh, so it's not an implication, in my view, that because your enemy is torturing your prisoners, you're entitled to torture their prisoners in response. There are some actions that are just prohibited um, uh, because of the, the nature, uh, the intrinsically immoral nature of that action. And I think this is recognised by the distinction between mala in se and mala prohibita. So something that's wrong in itself and something that's wrong because it's prohibited. So what I'm trying to get at is unpick the structure of what it is for something to be mala prohibita be wrong because it's prohibited. So it's the prohibition that makes it wrong rather than it being wrong that makes it prohibited. Okay, so let me just apply this to uh, um, unconventional force. 
given exceptionalism about force, force may be sensitive to its social and legal context. And where regularities of unconventional force exist, practitioners should follow those rules. They should follow its prohibitions and its permissions. And obviously there's a further corollary which I haven't stated, but if there's an opportunity to set those conventions in a way that's mutually beneficial, uh, you should also take that opportunity to do so. Now, categoricity restricts who is targeted. So I'm afraid I'm going to do the philosopher's trick that I'll say, I've given us a framework for thinking about things here. I haven't actually given us any specific rules. Maybe we can talk about that afterwards. Uh, but so I, so I don't know myself what the actual restriction is that derives from this line of thinking on who may be targeted. That's a deep question. We could go into it uh, in discussion. Uh, but I, and, and, it, and categoricity res restricts some kinds of force uh, uh, on, on what kinds of force may be used. So I think no torture, for instance. Uh, but, for instance, um, uh, the boundaries of property seems to me exactly the kinds of things, what property may be destroyed, what property may be tampered with, is exactly the kind of thing that's affected by these regularities of behaviour. Uh, where no conventions exist, it seems to me that unconventional force, the ethics of it, is just as per the state of nature. And I'm just putting that as a placeholder there. I don't pretend to say exactly what those requirements are. Um, but there is, the final thing that I want to bring out, there is a quite an interesting and significant policy implication that comes out from this argument. So recurringly over the, over the last years, and the Snowden revelation showed this very dramatically, uh, whenever there's a revelation about a particular practice which uh, various intelligence agencies have been involved in, uh, which people dislike, think shouldn't be taking place, the usual response to this is to say, we need to have judges overseeing these intelligence agencies. We can't trust the politicians to do so. So the accountability needs to be shifted from political accountability to juridical <coughs> accountability. And I'm opposed to this. I think I mean, there's a number of counter-arguments for it. But I think one that emerges from this is that conventions exist when, when they're common knowledge. People need to know about them. So common knowledge doesn't mean public knowledge. It just means that everyone involved in the practice needs to know what it is. And it doesn't look at all plausible that the, judi the judiciary will have any sensitivity whatsoever to the informal laws and norms that govern the practice of unconventional force. And it's by those standards that the practitioners of unconventional force should be held accountable, not by standards, for instance, uh, 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 not by standards which are insensitive to the particularities of the use of unconventional force. Judges don't know what those rules should consist in. Practitioners, therefore, I argue, should be judged by what I've termed big boys' rules. Thank you very much, and uh, look forward to your comments and questions.